Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Jim. Hey, Catherine. Quick update for anyone who listened yesterday. Van's wife had his baby, and her name is Charlotte. So there we go. That's a beautiful Wonderful name. thing happened yesterday. Yeah. Um, so today, Jim, you know, like when we started talking a few weeks ago, I was really like scared in the abstract, but I didn't become, it didn't really hit me until I got a call that one of my friends had it. Um, and I wanted to talk to them, but they were kind of in the throes of it and it was a really difficult time. And so we didn't end up talking, but they're actually, they're up for talking to us today. That'd be great. A voice from the other side. Right. You know, they're one of the superhuman people we've been talking maybe, about. Maybe, maybe. Right? Maybe. There's this idea that they could be immune now. Yeah. I mean, likely. I'd expect that they are. So what do we know about how we're going to figure out if people are okay afterwards? Just very recently, Dr. Fauci said that we would have antibody tests rolling out within a week. And they were approved by the, one was approved by the FDA about a week ago. And they're starting clinical trials on these that would help uh, help give us a sense of who has antibodies, meaning who has had the virus in them, even if they didn't get sick and didn't have access to a test, which so many Americans didn't and still don't. The test right now is just looking for actual virus within you. And if you've cleared that virus, um, sometimes even just in the late stages of the disease, you might um, test negative. And also the test is not perfect. So this antibody test could help us understand who has had the disease already and also will give us an idea of who has immunity. Well, okay, so I know two of these possibly superhumanly immune, but we don't know yet, people. And I actually haven't talked to them since they got sick. Like, we've been texting and emailing and stuff, but I haven't actually talked to them. So I haven't heard the whole story. And uh, so I thought today we could just call them and talk to them about what happened to them. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear. Okay, great. Their names are F.T. Kola and Karen Mahajan. And how do you know them? I know them from Austin, when I used to live in Austin. I um, remember that. We hung out at South by Southwest. Didn't I make you go two-stepping? Coolest music do. festivals and art media festivals around. I was there sure. speaking. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're really cool. Um FT lives in San Francisco now, and Karen lives in Providence, but we were all in Austin at the same time, and um, they're both writers. Karen? Hey, what's up? Hi. Hey. Oh, hear hey. You? Yeah, we hey. can hear you. How are you? Um, fine. Fine? <laughs> yeah. Actually fine. Tell me when all of this began. When did y'all last hang out? So we have a group of friends that were coming together for two of the group's wedding in Miami in the last weekend of February. And how was the wedding? Yeah. Why wasn't Catherine invited to the wedding? <laughs> I'll get into that. It's a good it question. It was a fantastic okay. wedding. It was a great wedding. So in the last weekend of February, you two saw each other 
it was before America really became cognizant of the scale of the COVID-19 crisis. You know, at the time, there was right. uh, no social distancing in place. There were no masks. And we were probably, you know, sharing plates of food, sharing um, cups of water and iced coffee and generally treating the time as one would any other time. Did you consider taking measures? Were you thinking, should I go to this wedding or not? Or was it not even in your consciousness um, at the time? I had been like following the virus really closely, but it felt like a thing that was coming mm -hmm. rather than a thing that was here. And it was just a very different time, you know, in America <laughs> at the end of February. Yeah. It was something I thought about because I'm type 2 diabetic, so I have one of the comorbidities for COVID-19. Yeah. But the kind of messaging seemed like if you take reasonable precautions to wash your hands, you should be fine. So how long after that did you start to think something might be uh, wrong? So I flew back to San Francisco from Miami on a very early morning flight on the 3rd. And I was fine until Friday, March the 6th, that night at home. I started to feel a little bit off. I tested my blood sugar as diabetics always do when they feel weird. That was fine, but I had a mild fever. Um, and I should say that from the moment I started to feel sick on the night of March the 6th, I kept imagining myself as in a book as this like index case moving across the landscape <laughs> um, if it was COVID. And I thought I, sh I should stay inside. Although the idea that it might have been at that point seemed extremely unlikely to me. And that's where it really began for me that night. Okay, I returned to Providence on the 3rd of March. And on the 4th and 5th of March, um, I returned to teaching. At the end of those two days, I started to think I'd come down with a flu of some kind, like I had body aches, fatigue. At what point did it get bad enough to send you seeking testing and care? So over the weekend, it kind of gradually got a little bit worse. Um, I'm currently doing a two-year fellowship at Stanford, and I had read that the Stanford hospital had developed its own COVID test. And I was also cognizant that I wouldn't meet the requirements to get tested just by the Department of Health because I had not come into contact with a COVID case. I hadn't traveled from Wuhan or Italy or any of the affected wow. areas. So yeah, in, in early March, uh -huh. we were already still saying, like yeah. it was clearly all over the country yeah. and we were saying, unless you'd been to Wuhan, China, then you weren't. Okay. Yes. Yeah, right. Okay. I remember that Monday, I tried to pack my dishwasher and tidy up my kitchen a little bit. And it felt like I had done a workout. <laughs> it felt like yeah. I jogged or I picked up some heavy boxes. And that day I had a video chat with a doctor who said that she could, thought that she could hear pneumonia when I was speaking to her. Um, oh my gosh. And they asked me if I was, what? yeah, they asked me if I was well enough to drive. I said that I was. Uh, they said the next day at lunchtime when there were fewest people who were going to be at Stanford Express Care, I should put on a mask, come down to Stanford and wait in my car. So I remember waiting in my car, the doctors in their PPE, really intense PPE coming towards my car. Oh my um, gosh. What did that feel like? It felt like a scene out of contagion or it was everything I'd read about coming to life. I felt and I was a biohazard. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but um, I uh, had not had contact with a confirmed COVID case, but I think by virtue of being diabetic, that's what um, 
got me a test. So after my test, I went to sleep that night and I had the most intense chills of my life. My teeth were chattering so hard that I, I was really afraid they would break. Oh my God. And then I started to hallucinate. I thought that my sister who lives in Brooklyn was coming into my apartment to take care of me. And I had this repeated conversation with her over and over again. I kept saying, don't come in here. I'm sick. I then thought I was holding a very big spoon for some reason. <laughs> and I kept thinking, where am I going to put my spoon down? Uh, that was that's, a common, that's a common symptom. That's <laughs> <laughs> a common symptom. It's a very big spoon. Um, And then I I fell asleep. I woke up to a phone call telling me that I had COVID. I was really shocked. And the clinician from the San Francisco Department of Public Health said, I think you should be in hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, they effectively told me to sit tight and wait for an ambulance, which would come to pick me up. Like if it was happening in parallel, Karen, what was... What was going on with you? You know, I started to self-isolate as of Friday. What happened is I canceled my classes for for that week. I was tired and uh, I started to lose my sense of taste and smell in a way that I'd never experienced before. Eating pizza was like eating cardboard. Um, So did you just eat really, really healthy stuff? Because you might as well. Uh, No, actually, I don't know why that didn't occur to me still. I guess the texture of healthy stuff somehow is off-putting. Oh, Um, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, the university at that stage had not taken any steps. And it wasn't until yeah. Friday, March 13th that the university um, decided that it was going to send students home. That was a really critical period in which y- your experiences played out. So in late February, you there was kind of not even a second thought about not going traveling to Miami and going to a wedding and hanging out in close proximity and doing karaoke. And then by two weeks later, your university had sent all students off of campus because it was no longer safe to have classes. Um, Yeah, it was interesting to see how jumbled the response was to the official channels because I called up the Brown Nurse hotline. Uh, I was then told to call the Department of Health at in Rhode Island, but I only got voicemail a few times. Eventually, I got a call from the Department of Health. And they, and this makes sense, my symptoms were never very, you know, had never, I never had high fever, for example. And they, they also kind of seemed a little casual till they heard about FT's case. And then they said that my wife, Francesca, and I would be tested the next day. And Francesca and I drive out, there was a hazmat tent and three healthcare workers in hazmat suits, or what I think of as hazmat suits and masks, very helpful, came up to the car and took swabs from our mouths and noses uh, as we proffered our heads out of the car. And, you know, there's funny, details that, stick in my mind. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's funny details that stick in my mind. Uh, 20, yeah, about 30 hours later, so on Friday evening, I got a call from the Department of Health saying that I had tested positive and my wife miraculously had not tested positive. And then I, the next day, I have a very long conversation with uh, the Department of Health and a CDC doctor in which they reconstruct everything I had done over the past 10 days since I'd come back from Miami and become symptomatic. Oh my gosh. Which was like, uh, you know, it was it was funny. It was like being subpoenaed or something where all your movements are suddenly imbued with this negative meaning. Right. Um, it sounds like this was the period where we thought we could do contact tracing. 
Oh. Like it was before we realized it was just everywhere. Yes, it had reached that point of thinking that an individual vector could be isolated from the crowd. Oh my gosh. That was about a month behind where that thinking would have actually been possible. But hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. So FT, could we talk about yeah. how your experience contrasted with that? So uh, they took me into the ambulance. They were super sweet. I remember the EMT had like, you know, lab goggles on and they were filled with sweat. And he kept apologizing that they were filled with sweat. And I kept apologizing to him that he was coming into contact with me. So it was this apology <laughs> extravaganza as we traveled <laughs> <laughs> through the streets of San Francisco um, to uh, UCSF. That's where my subsequent two-week stay in hospital began. Wow. wow, two weeks. Yes. I remember saying to the nurse, you know, I'm so sorry that I'm here. I, I'm so sorry. And she, kept, and she said to me, you don't have to apologize. You're very sick. And I remember thinking, at, like, oh, like, am I? <laughs> um, <laughs> and the virus I think of kind of like a werewolf or a vampire, it seems like in the day, I felt more or less fine, but like clockwork at five o'clock, the fever and the chills would hit. I remember they would put just pile blankets on me, put heat packs all around me, and I would feel like my body was made of ice internally. And then when the fevers did hit, I would become extremely lethargic. This was, you know, between the 11th of March and the 16th of March. Mm -hmm. And they also kept saying to me, you know, days 8 to 12 of the virus are the days when things might go wrong. So March the 16th was my day 10 of the virus. That night, I was particularly hit hard by it. And the next day, uh, they took me into the ICU. Um, So in the ICU, I was on six liters of oxygen. I don't know what six liters of oxygen means. Is that... It's a lot. Number. It's it's a it's about as much as you can give before you need to use some other form of oxygen delivery or intubate someone. Yeah, I mean, I I realized talking to the doctor in retrospect that at that point I'd already had moderate hypoxia and I'd already had what they would consider sepsis in some form, but I didn't know that I had had those things. And I and I was ultimately lucky. I stayed in the ICU for three days on that six liters of oxygen, um, not deteriorating further um and then on the 19th of march they moved me to a newly created covid only ward it was slowly weaned off the oxygen until i could breathe on my own no fevers for about maybe 36 hours mm-hmm. i was breathing fine on my own i'd managed to have a shower on my own um they discharged me and took me home in an ambulance can i just ask you one of the scariest things about this is the isolation you know the fact that you can't have people around you what did it feel like to have kind of no human contact outside of a person in a hazmat suit for those weeks I think that the almost like the aesthetic experience of it is really terrifying right I was also acutely aware that um every time the hospital staff came into contact with me, they were putting themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. And so that, I mean, I think that was quite traumatizing. But what I do want to say is that everyone I came into contact with went to incredible lengths 
to humanize the experience. So, I mean, when I was like in the ICU and kind of too weak to do this stuff myself, you know, I had nurses who were like wiping my body free of sweat, who were standing over me and counting my breaths, you know, x-ray technicians who were managing somehow to take an x-ray without moving me, coming into a lot of contact with me. Even the men and women who cleaned my room would ask if I was okay, if I needed anything, you know, like that's not their job. They didn't have to tend to me in any way. And they already had what must have been the most dreaded assignment in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, But the kind of care that I think is given to you by the people um, who were doctors and nurses and hospital stuff, it it really, really humbled me. Like I kept thinking of it as almost like a kind of radical love to like care for, for someone who you don't know who's not related to you in these incredibly intimate ways, to like mm-hmm. care for them at great risk to yourself. And it felt like the closest thing to grace that I've experienced. And to think that the people who were doing that are like, you know, it's not just their job. They're also like someone's parent or someone's sibling or someone's Mm -hmm. child. And I, I think that the thing that has struck me the most is that I was lucky to have the space and resources and equipment at a hospital that was prepared to deal with this. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems as I've like read about this, that there is this national tragedy of not like a lack of devotion on the part of nurses and doctors and hospital staff, but a lack of providing them the equipment and resources they need to provide this care for everyone. And, you know, just the (laughs) fact that some people are dying at home or some people can't access a care system feels like the most terrible, the most terrible failure because what made this experience tolerable, what made it a human experience was the level of devotion on behalf of the people who cared for me, the level of monitoring. I think there are reasons of privilege why I had that experience. I think there are some things that happen to be luck, maybe getting it very early, probably being in the Bay Area, which um, mm-hmm. seemed a little bit better equipped for all of this. But that trauma, which I, of being a biohazard of having this novel virus that no one really fully understands, I think will be common to everyone who has it. What I don't think will be common is having the saving grace of that degree of care and that feeling that you are being treated very lovingly almost um, by -hmm. other people who want you to get through this and who are being given the ability the space and the time and resources to help you to get through this. Yeah. Yeah. And Karin, just to wrap up your story, you you basically had one night of chills and then kind of it faded? So mine was like a, a, a mild flu that lasted, you know, the symptoms were pretty consistent for two weeks. And then, yeah, then it kind of ended after that. Right. Because you were so early on these curves in some ways your experience was different and perhaps easier than people who are going through it now i mean it's the the amount of deaths is just overwhelming and tragic but there you are also first in some ways among people who have 
recovered, and there will be a lot of people like that. I think, you know, there's probably a tendency to be like, well, you're out of it. You're not only are you over it, you're now you're one of the superhuman immune. You're like the magic (laughs) people now who can do whatever you want. And I'm curious what it actually feels like to be on the other side of this. I think the terrifying thing is the thing that's caused me a significant amount of anxiety is not knowing. I think probably after any illness, there is the fear of like, am I really better? Is it really over? Am I going to like reinfect myself? It's not clear or or no one has been able to say to me yet with any certainty that there is immunity um, or what, how long the immunity might last for, um, what form it would take. Then there's the question of viral shedding. Like, am I still freakishly like shedding this virus in some way? But I think the thing that is maybe for me has been most um, anxiety producing on a personal level is, you know, is there any long-term damage from this? Like are my lungs actually going to be okay? Is some other system in my body damaged and there's just the inherent trauma of being ill, um, of coming close to um, kind of dwelling in this like Sontagian like kingdom of illness mm-hmm. <laughs> for a while. And then, um, and then that exacerbated by the way in which, in a way, like everyone in the world, even the people who are not uh, infected of experiencing the trauma of the virus. So, yeah, it doesn't feel like a sort of, you know, clean recovery in any way. Right. And um, I've been proceeding on the assumption that I'm not immune. So there is this kind of like psychological, almost like hangover that you get from passing through the portal of an illness like this. Right. But yeah, Jim, what do we know about immunity? So most viruses do cause at least a short term adaptive immune response. So that's different from your innate immune response, which is where like the civilians of your immune system gather their pots and pans and hammers and torches and take to the streets to try to (laughs) fight off this thing. And so so then you develop this um, adaptive immune response, this the the antibodies you hear about that those take weeks and months to uh, populate your body. But they do, and the question of how long they last and whether you have enough to be fully immune is open. There was a study this week that came out out of China, not peer-reviewed, that suggested that many people might not have enough antibodies. So there, it's not simply a binary question of whether or not you get them. It's you, you might, We might have to have titers in the way that we do with hepatitis and other diseases where we mm-hmm. actually quantify and re-immunize based on how much you have. So I think it's safe to continue living as though you are not immune, but I'm also hopeful that you are. And I, if I had to bet, I'd put money that you are, and at least for a, a while. And What is a while? Like weeks, months? It's impossible to say. Yeah. I mean, it could be years. Yeah, one of the really cool things that you're seeing is clinical trials being rolled out to try and see if the antibodies in one person's blood could be given to another. And that is something that we do in some infectious diseases. And that's one of the clearest ways that I think we we could end up seeing 
promise for helping to treat the disease. Is that plasma? Plasma Yeah, so in the plasma is where the antibodies live. And if if both of you are flooded with these antibodies right now, you could donate blood and they distill it down and just take the plasma and then isolate the antibodies and then, you know, you can inject them into people. Mm. What about the viral shedding? Do you think, like, how long are people shedding the virus for post? The longest report that I've seen was up to five weeks uh, fecally, not clearly in high levels that would be concerning at all for a person who is, you know, has access to basic hygiene and sanitation facilities, I mean, toilets, but but, but which could be a factor in much of the world that does not. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that duration is going to vary. The amount of virus you're shedding is going to vary. But, but I think in terms of basic infectivity, after you're no longer feeling bad, you're very likely not infectious. And then to wait a few more days after that of total isolation before even getting back in the same space as your the rest of your family um, is sound. So FT probably is long past. Oh, yeah. That was very generous of you to be so, uh, to, to, to play it so safe. So similarly, should Kara not be that worried about spreading it to his wife? With something like this, it's almost impossible. It, it is impossible right. to say 100%, but just isolate for two weeks after your last symptom because that's the easiest for me to make sure it's 100%. But in real life, um, <laughs> okay, everyone who's listening to this, totally isolate as long as you can. But I, I'm not <laughs> hearing concern that people are infectious after yeah. they feel better in in, in significant ways. Like um, if I maybe... Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm adding too many caveats right there right now. Okay, that's the best that we know right now. That could change. Listen to the advice of experts as it does. <laughs> You're the expert. <laughs> well, I will update ac- accordingly right away. And I still think it's really smart to totally isolate for, if possible. I mean, if you're if you're working from home anyway and you have an extra bedroom in your house, hang out there for a couple extra days, even after you feel totally better. But if that's completely impossible, I wouldn't panic that I'm infecting my whole family because we live in this one. Yeah, and we were, I was told by the Department of Health here that three days after you've stopped having a fever and symptoms is when you can declare yourself COVID-free. Yeah, see, this is where if we had really copious testing mm-hmm. and we were just we were like, well, why don't we test all the people after they've been sick who yeah. aren't even sick anymore? Then we'd know exactly what percentage we could detect virus in. Yeah, and, because it puts us in yeah. a ridiculous situation of, of speculating the way we are, but that's caused by an actual lack of equipment. Right. But I, I think you're both out of the woods. I, I, I can confidently say that. If you ha- if you if you tested positive now, I would be certain um, mm-hmm. that that was reinfection. That makes sense. Is reinfection possible? It seems extremely unlikely. It seems mm-hmm. that when it has appeared to have happened before, uh, in other countries there were cases where you know China was testing people really constantly, um, and some people would test positive and then feel better and test negative and to be sent home and then come back and test positive again. But when you have a test that is only 60, sometimes even less than 50% sensitive, so you have a lot of false negatives, it's much more likely this was a sort of biphasic case mm-hmm. and there was a negative test in there that was not, in fact, negative. Mm-hmm. When will we have an antibody test? Really soon. The FDA just approved one 
about a week ago. It's it's basically approved and recommended by the World Health Organization in a research capacity so that we can help understand how many people might be immune and you know when those antibodies develop. It wouldn't be clear what you could do with that. We're not ready to say, okay, that means you can go just do whatever you want in the world now. You don't have to social distance at all. You're good. But that would be great. So, we, I mean, there is this idea that once we have the antibody test, we'll be able to know who's safe and they can restart life. Like everyone is talking about how it's just the antibody test that we're waiting on to like be able to let some semblance of normal life return. But you're saying that's not, it's more complicated than that. Everything's more complicated than that. <laughs> You'll want to make sure that that test is really, really specific so that if it's positive, you're 100% certain. And you need to know that the antibodies last for a meaningful period of time. We also want to prove that everyone gets sufficient numbers of those antibodies to be meaningful. So some of the tests, the pictures of tests you've seen going around are kind of this really small minimalist thing, which will give you a yes or no, like it look almost like a pregnancy test. And ideally, that's all we'll need. But we might need quantification to say we need to know you have X number of antibodies in order to be safe. All we can mm -hmm. say from this test is that you have been exposed to this virus. Mm -hmm. Is that a clear enough answer? Mm -hmm. Sorry. <laughs> it's never short. It's never short. Oh, yeah. Can I ask you what it was like to walk outside for the first time after your quarantine? Um, it was... <laughs> It was just incredible to be outside. The, the biggest thing, I think, was that my lungs managed to go for a walk and nothing mm -hmm. happened. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But it, it, it felt very strange because the day I went into the hospital, San Francisco was bustling. And the day going for that first walk, you know, everything was quiet. It was, mm -hmm. it was like I had gone to an alien planet and come back to a different world. Right. I felt a little bit like... You know, in 28 days later, when he wakes up from the hospital, moves through post-zombie London, and is like, what, what's happened? <laughs> wow. You know, I, um, I can't tell you, like, it's so good to talk to you, and I can't tell you how, like, relieving it is for at least you all to be on the other side of this. It's really, really wonderful. Thank you. I mean, it feels, I keep thinking... Well, first of all, I think if I had been in hospital now, it would be very different. At the time that I was in hospital, um, we weren't seeing just horrifying and heartbreaking notices of deaths coming out of New York, like right. every hour. But I, when I think about um, why I might have survived it, there doesn't really seem to be like any rhyme or reason to it like I, I think you know was it because I had no underlying lung issues was it because I had this BCG vaccine as a child was it my level of exposure in some way and it doesn't really feel like any of those things explain it all of the people who I've read about and who I see people grieving for I can't differentiate very much between them and me can I you know Okay, well, here's a question for you all. All of your wonderful writer friends keep posting poetry on Instagram. But I, can I, this is the most cheesy thing I've ever done, but can I read you this poem? Please do. Yeah. Because I keep thinking about it. Okay, so this is actually, your friend Travis posted this. And this is a poem 
by Charles Simic. Mm -hmm. It's called Elementary Cosmogony. How to the invisible I hired myself to learn, whatever trade it might consent to teach me. How the invisible came out for a walk on a certain evening, casting the shadow of a man. How I followed behind, dragging my body, which is my toolbox, which is my sustenance. For a long apprenticeship that has, as its last and seventh rule, the submission to chance. Hmm. Yeah, I, <laughs> well, I think like that this experience of this virus blends together that feeling of bad luck or good luck um, or chance or arbitrariness with feelings of very clear indications that that the virus is like a mirror that we are all looking into and it is uh, looking back at us with the ways that we've structured this, this society and this world and that blend of things is really strange because on that bodily level, on that level of like, why did my lungs make it through this? Why did I go home? You know, why am I okay now? it feels very arbitrary. And then that's all against this background of, you know, privileges of being a person with access to care, of being a person despite a chronic illness who can manage that chronic illness, of all of the histories of structural and medical and environmental inequality. It seems like the virus moves through the world and fills the spaces that we make for it. So mm -hmm. if we have people who have to expose themselves more because they have to go to work uh, or who centuries of inequality have led them to suffer more chronic illness, then the virus will fill that space. Mm -hmm. But against that backdrop, it's, it's, it's easy or tempting to try to look for some kind of meaning in why things turned out the way they did. And, and I found trying to that like an absence of meaning. <laughs> it feels very strange to read the, the obituaries or the articles about people who will, had every reason <laughs> to be part of this world who are suddenly not part of it and to think, you know, why did that happen? Um, right. And it didn't happen to me. <laughs> I think they call it survivor's guilt. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad y'all are well. Like, just so, so, so relieved <laughs> y'all are well. No matter what combination of privilege and chance brought you through, I, it, I, I'm really grateful that you're, that you're well. Thanks, and thanks Thank for having you. us. Yeah, y'all keep me posted on, on all of your thoughts and, and life events from Thank here on you. out. Thank okay. you. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, guys. Bye. 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 This show is produced by Alvin Mellis today with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. You can write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com or call us at 202-642-6487. If you like the show, tell your friends and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll talk to you Monday. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? 
Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.